0: views on Everton Football Club. Hosted by Alex Johnson, James Boyman, and Ryan Williams.
1: Ladies and gentlemen, welcome back to the American Toffee Podcast. James here, joined by Alex and Ryan. We got the three Musketeers back together again we are going to be discussing today the fallout from Everton's match against Man City at the weekend. The, of course, disastrous missed penalty call made by Chris Cavanaugh. We'll be going into uh, the details on that. And then we'll be talking about, of course, Everton, in case you missed it, appointed a new director of football. Kevin Thelwell on Friday. We'll be doing a deep dive on him, his history how he might fit in at Everton Football Club and the vision going forward. And then we'll end with, uh, Ryan did a little bit of scouting of Jean-Philippe Gabamin, who is, of course, on loan in Russia. Interesting and very Everton coincidence to send him off to Russia, given the current state of the world. But Ryan watched him in his first appearance for the club, and we'll be doing the scouting report on him as well. Before we get into... The Kavanaugh Call. We just want to remind everyone to please subscribe to the show and leave us a rating or review on your podcast platform of choice. If you want to find all of our links to social media and all the links to the podcast, you can find it at linktr.ee slash Pod. Find that in the description. Or if you want to join our Discord, you can join that at invite.gg slash ATP, which you should absolutely do. With that, let's get it going here. So from Sky Sports, Everton as of today, received an apology from PGMOL Chief Mike Riley after VAR failed to award a penalty to the Blues against Manchester City at the weekend. We obviously talked a lot about it on the post-match space, but the apology that was demanded by Denise Barrett-Baxendale and the Everton Board has now been officially issued. So with this formal apology from the PGMOL do we think this matters at all? Do you guys feel reassured or better about the decision in the aftermath?
0: Well, one wrinkle about this, which is interesting, is it wasn't just for that incident. It, it seemed like it was a greater apology, if you listen to what Alan Meyer said and the way other people char- characterized it, which is interesting, I think. Um, I, I think if that buys us the next call, maybe. That's got to be the reason for doing it, although I don't think Frank Lampert, as critical as he was, did us any favors. Uh, Hopefully, at a minimum, Kavanaugh will not be on any more Everton matches, and frankly, he shouldn't be on any Manchester matches, considering he's from there. And I find that very curious, because I know years ago, they used to have that arrangement where they didn't really have officials from their locality ref those types of matches. I don't know why that went away. I think that would be interesting, although... Sure enough, I was watching today. Leicester City, Burnley. Who was in that match?
1: The man himself. Hmm. No suspension. No punishment whatsoever. Just business as usual for the man. Yeah, I don't know how... I mean, it probably they probably couldn't change it quickly enough.
0: But I do think he's he was moved to fourth official, I think, for the weekend. And, and it's a benign match. A match that has nothing to do with Manchester teams or big teams. So maybe that was a punishment. We think that, that that's probably not
2: unintentional, right? Yeah. No, I mean, an apology is an apology and everyone's memeing it and saying, like, oh, thank you so much. I will say just... From a, from a different viewpoint, acknowledgement of the mistake publicly is important um, to an extent like that also gives the public more grounds for accountability in the future to say, like, you are acknowledging X, Y and Z, because then what happened? We get the apology and then people started quoting the apologies we've gotten in the future. I mean, excuse me, in the past, not in the future. <laughs> I hope they're not. Um, so overarching point is, I mean, yeah, it does. It do a whole lot now. No. But at least it's acknowledgement that's important to an extent. So,
1: Yeah, I mean, I think the key is, right, my high school soccer coach used to say and many others have said, it's only a mistake if you don't learn from it. So what lessons do we take from this and what improvements are implemented so that we're not dealing with this exact same situation in just a couple of weeks, right, or in a couple of months? What changes can they make to increase the level of transparency and accountability, which are two themes that seems like we talk about every single time, one of these horrible decisions is made and then it feels like it kind of they brush it under the rug they make the apology and then it just a couple weeks later everyone forgets about it until then the next call takes center stage and and moves on but i think there are like a, a lot of opportunities for to improve the process obviously the var system utterly failed at the weekend as it has failed multiple times in the recent past and so curious what people you guys think about what they could change or What improvements could be made? Did the system fail?
0: Well, so I bring this up for one reason, one reason only. The way I understood the system to be uh, works everywhere else is it's an assistant. It doesn't make the calls. And I think that's the biggest disappointment of it. I mean, I don't get any impression whatsoever that Mike Riley has interest in transparency or accountability. Because, look, my my take is this. uh, The sport is hard to officiate, but having one person there... To put their singular subjective interpretation of things, and it it is an interpretation of the rules at all times, that's fine. But where I got a real problem with it is, and I think it breaks down, is where someone else makes the call. That's not fair. I mean, even if it's subjective. Riley, you know, in this particular instance, Paul Tierney knew he didn't see it very well and admitted that to Frank. And that's cool, right? And the way it should play out is, hey guys, you know, he's in the earpiece. I didn't see it real well. My AR didn't see it real well. We have VAR. What's it looking like to you guys? Is this something I need to go look at? And I cannot believe anyone in their right mind would have looked at that and said, no, you don't need to look at it. So what cannot happen, in my opinion, is have the guy in the booth far away make a determination. Nope, it's not a handball. We don't think it's conclusive. Move on. Not their call, because now you're using two different subjective elements and there's no one to talk to. There's no one to explain that. So you couldn't be transparent anyway about it. Um, so I, I don't think it's implemented anyway. And I don't think it was ever intended to be. I'm convinced that Riley's tried to sabotage this thing from day one, because why wouldn't you have you know, taken the best practices around the world and implement it?
2: That's not been the case at all. It's kind of the perfect storm, too, right? Because who is facing the public during the match? It's the, it's the referee on the field. Yet, the referee on the field isn't making the call. So, A, it lets him off the hook, right? Because he's the one in the public eye currently. And, B, it allows the guy in the room to say whatever he wants, apparently. But I'm disappointed, though, to see that Kavanaugh was refereeing the Leicester City match today because, I mean, that tells you right there. The apology is the apology, but what, what changed? Yeah, he could have been suspended. I mean, he could have been, I suppose. Yeah, but... I, he definitely but could I, have I, been because he should not accept that. He shouldn't accept the fact that the guy in the booth made the call either. But what, like, what is the
1: procedure there? Like, if, if, if Kavanaugh says, hey, I'm making this call, is he supposed to say, no, I need to look at it? Right? There should be a... And I, that's why I agree with Ryan is, like, it should always end, if you're going to overturn it, the guy on the field should always take a look first and either agree or disagree. Then- yeah, go to the monitor. I mean, the yeah.
0: fact that they went out of their way to say don't go to the monitor for the entire first right. year, and we've only seen it happen a handful of times, is absolutely Bush League. It's missing the whole point. But I, I think most important is that I think a lot can be done to change this. And I, I know I know, we were talking off air a little bit about the interview. Was it Stuart Atwell or was it Madley? I can't remember who it was. I think it was Stuart Atwell anyway. They gave that interview... Now I forgot to go back and check because Blainsey sent it to us um, where he talked about, I want people to understand a little bit better, uh, you know, what goes into the decision-making and um, be more empathetic because it's a tough job. Well, we all know it's a tough job, but frankly, there's no transparency on how any of this works. So I don't know how tough it really is. And that's why I don't understand. I feel like it's, I feel like Mike Riley is not serving them very well as a union chief doing kind of the complete opposite. So, I think there are changes that they could make, and I think there's some examples around the world where I think it would be cool for the fans, and I think that would generate more empathy because I think it is a tough gig. What do you guys think about the way we do things in the U.S. and maybe some other places that I think would be really interesting in the Premier League if they were to ever adopt it?
1: Yeah, look, I mean, and it's it's not just the U.S., right? You look at Australia. What is going on in these conversations between the guy in the booth and the guy on on the pitch? That can't be transparent. Why can't we hear what the conversation is like? Is there some secret code? Is there, you know, confidential information being exchanged? No. I understand the PGMOL's perspective of, you know, you want to protect your guys, just like anyone who's leading a group wants to do. But I think it can be mutually beneficial to improve the transparency because then, as Ryan said, we have more empathy for them. And you look at, for example, football in the US, American football. Refs make a call, they go out, they announce to the entire stadium, hey, here's the call, here's the reasoning for the call. Um, you look at basketball, the refs make a call, they go to video to review it, they come over to the broadcasters sometimes who are, who are announcing the game and say, hey, here's what we saw, here's what happened, here's why we're making the call. Um, and, and the fact that we get that in this instance, kind of as the game is shortly shortly after the game ends. And then I mean, it just a sort of there's a flow very you want
0: to low. keep up though I mean, exactly want, a, I get that but like what do you guys think about afterwards and one thing that they've been reluctant to in America is interview them afterwards You yeah. have the refs explain calls do we think that would be helpful I think it's hard to do it in midstream but if you're going to do a VAR review I mean they do it in Australia I mean I like how they do that I think that's really cool I love it I think it's really interesting I don't know if you pipe the audio through the stadium I mean they put up on the screen what they were are reviewing for so there's that um which is strange um maybe interviewing afterwards and just asking hey what were you guys thinking i mean a chance to have them talk and explain themselves the problem is now you're asking them to have a little different skill set i mean some of these guys but that being said i mean you're in front of people all the time you have to be a good communicator to communicate with managers to communicate with your team i mean you're on stage in front of thousands of people. Surely you can't stand in front and do an interview. I mean, I
2: I think they have to do something, or sh- they just should do something, shouldn't they? I mean, I, I just I just think it sends the wrong like message. Do I think do I think it could be appropriate in some instances? Sure, but to set the precedence to say every single match you will go over in front of the camera and you're going to answer as to why you did your job the way you did your job, to me does not sound right. I also think that conversation or that explanation could turn in could devolve into something maybe you don't want it to either True. like do you want an explanation or do you want someone arguing with the referee about his explanation right. but see i want you know what I, mean? I
0: want him, i want him
2: mic'd up because i want to hear what people also say to the ref like if you so want to create the up yeah yeah it would be yeah, great. Yeah. It would as we you know as, as 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 James said for example, if they're mic'd up and they you hear them, you know, discussing the the call as they're reviewing it on on VAR as he's going over to the side of the pitch and looking at the screen, then that's fine because you're showing them make the decision. You're not yeah. putting them in front yeah. of the camera and saying answer for your work every week.
0: You'll be yeah. cool though. Imagine like afterwards running kind of like the highlights and going through calls and doing the audio clips and stuff from the referee. I'd love that because one great thing is you can hear the players giving them all sorts of stuff. And, you know, it's very funny. Look at how polite people are in rugby and how they are in the Aussie Football League, too. I mean, they they act differently because they know they're mic'd up. Do you think these guys are going to be bad mouthing them the way they clearly do? I mean, I'm not a great reader of lips, but... And they, try, it's ridiculous the way they behave against some of these referees, especially down on the sidelines. Like some of those managers, I, I think that would be very interesting. I think it would probably help the referees. But
1: uh, Alon had some choice words for the assistant. Uh, <laughs> that's for sure at the weekend. Um, yes, he did. Um, no, but i yellow carded. Right. So I think, in summation, I think it, it would. There has to be some change, and and I agree with Alex where. Yeah, trotting them in front of the media, especially in the UK, where I think the media tend to have a more adversarial relationship with uh, sport figures, where a lot of times it feels a little bit like a gotcha situation, trying to get them to say something that they're going to regret, especially in the heat of the moment, immediately following a match or something like that. But I think there needs to be more done rather than just putting up on the big board, reviewing for handball, no handball. Like there's, there's a middle ground there that we can absolutely strike with. I don't think there's much of an issue. Yeah, it just doesn't
0: inspire any confidence
1: doing that. No. Uh,
0: by the way, it was Anthony Taylor in the interview, so I'm sorry I screwed okay. that up. I mean, you think I, I, there's only so many of them, you think I could get it right, but I, I didn't. More than so. you think,
1: though. We were just talking about that. Anyway, yep. we digress. Let's move in to Kevin Thelwell. Hopefully we're pronouncing that correctly. Appointed as Everton Director of Football. Kind of out of nowhere. I don't think anyone really saw this coming. I mean, we knew that obviously the the search was on, but... I don't know did first personally I didn't even know we had decided to continue with the director of football model though I'm certainly glad that we chose to and uh Ryan put together pretty comprehensive summary of the man so we'll hand it off to him to kind of steer this and uh, I think we've got some really interesting info for you guys well first of all he's English not Welsh even though he did a,
0: a long stint at the Welsh FA he's currently the head of sport at Red Bull New York which is interesting um Definitely had an impact there, changed a bit how they operated. But first, let's talk a little bit about, we've talked a lot on the pod about what a director of football should and should not be and what are some important aspects of how they can govern the football side for Everton. And so I figured we could orient the conversation around kind of some of those big buckets, those subjects that we we deal with. So the first one I want to talk about is kind of identity. And in this case, it's footballing identity. You know, I I think that's something that needs to be passed down from above. A club identity is something we should be doing, too. But we're talking about the football identity aspect of it. Um, Focus on youth. Also a focus on development. That's kind of category three. And then the last one's kind of team building or succession planning, strategic management, you know, uh, trading players and managers and how to do that strategically. I think that's kind of like the last bucket. Um, Before we do that, though, let's talk a little bit about his resume uh, the first thing we see is his time at the the Welsh FA and it was a lot of coaching classes, and he's a coach himself. He has his pro license, which I think is helpful. Um, and then he had academy stints. He basically ran the academy at Derby, uh, at Preston North End before that, and then later at Wolves, and eventually matriculated up to sporting director at Wolves, which is fascinating when you have Mendez basically running transfers in many of it. We'll talk about that in a second. And then he went to um red bull new york which is an interesting move i think and became their head head of sport uh before he got named director of football at everton um so first i, I like i think there are a lot of different experiences in there that are somewhat unique that i, I think are going to help us understand a little bit maybe what he might be thinking in these areas but let's start with identity footballing identity and first so gentlemen we've talked about this a lot no reason to beat it into the ground but why is it
1: important i mean it's it's critical for the long-term sustainability and it it bleeds into everything right your identity is like your mission statement your core I, i your identity it is what you are so what is everton what is red bull new york i think red bull new york probably has a better idea of what they are than everton at the moment hopefully that's what the new director of football will help solve but if you have that as your anchor as your basis point then it bleeds into everything else you do. We've talked so much about how the identity needs to be set at the very highest level and leave it for the rungs below that on the ladder to execute on that identity and operationally achieve what you're looking to achieve with that identity. So what are Everton? I don't know if we have that answer. Hopefully, you know, he was asked that question in the interview, what he thinks we should be, but he even shouldn't be the one setting the identity. It should be his mandate to say, here's the identity. Now go and realize
2: it.
0: Yeah, it's kind of like you he know, sets it, the football identity as a derivation of the greater identity of the club. You know, I think that's how it should work.
2: Yeah, I mean, you know, it's, it's also important, you know, for player recruitment, for example. I mean, you need to create an identity for your club, and that helps players to understand really and get a clearer picture as to what they're walking into or what they could be walking into. But also, if you do it for long enough, then that means that you have players aspiring to be part of your club or network based on how you play, how you set up you know maybe like red bull in which you're able to give youth a chance at pretty much any level they desire and move up so yeah it's um, it's critical it drives it's important decisions. for everything in the club but also you know outside of the club and yeah, how does. you appear to everyone yeah you recruit players to
0: match that identity it helps you make those decisions so when he was first hired with new york red bull he said some interesting things that that makes sense because we've talked about and used the red bull kind of um group as a good example that has a strong brand, because it's literally a brand. Uh, (laughs) um, Thelwell said uh that he knew the club had a very strong identity and a very strong philosophy when it comes to recruiting players, which helped to make the decision easier to come across the pond. And it's very interesting because they they the Red Bull group has had a strong identity. I would argue though that New York team has never really reflected that identity with some of their bigger acquisitions. Now when he started, which is, you know, February 2020, the rules had changed with MLS. So, so now recruiting younger players had benefit. It really didn't have it before. So I can't totally blame the club for not having that. But I think what's really interesting is what he said is, quote, afterwards, you know, as he was kind of nearing the end of his tenure. And I, I, I will read it. His quote, the roster has been completely rebuilt there is a clear sporting vision now in place as part of a strategic five-year plan, and the pipeline of young talent is now stronger than ever. Now, before we get into young talent, I think it's safe to say that having an experience in the Red Bull group with that strong brand, you know, aggressive, disruptive, and and knowing the playing styles and Leipzig and Salzburg do that, and they recruit young players that are aggressive to fit that, that could only benefit us. And some of this five-year plan stuff, I mean, you have to, Matt, that sounds like music to the American Toffee Podcast ears.
2: Yeah, I mean, you know, what, when I think about Red Bull in general and the fact that he's worked in within the Red Bull umbrella is the fact that you have a brand across numerous clubs with the same identity, and they execute it well, pretty much, right? So what that tells me is not only do they have a clear identity but they also have clear processes as to how they achieve that identity in numerous countries at numerous levels. So with that being said, it feels like that you know that, that right there tells you it's going to be he has more experience in being able to build it and understand what Red Bull have been able to do at other clubs um, than let's say it was not under an affiliate-run program for someone like Red Bull who executes it the same way. And, by the way, the identity is, is I think, something a lot of fans – you know, would like to see at Everton in general. Yeah, I mean, it's it's exactly that. It's about being able to
1: do things, and I think Everton is is a different scale. I mean, it's a Premier League club, which he also has experience at, but it's not part of this larger like conglomerate or family of clubs, whatever terminology you want to use. So, with that, I think it offers a little bit maybe more freedom um, to him, a little bit more power and control, assuming he is given that, which we'll discuss later. But if you can carry over that experience and that framework in general of how to, I guess, realize an effective plan, which is something that we've been crying out for for God knows how long, then I think it sets the stage really well for, for him to be successful. And surely he's laid this out in interviews. So, I mean, that's part of the benefit, too. I mean, it's not someone
0: that's going in that's never operated in a successful organization. Alex, you hit the nail on the head, too. To be part of this group, you've got to be good. I mean, they don't hire just anyone to do these jobs. So I think that's an important facet, too. So let's talk about, he mentioned pipeline of young talent. So that's, that's twofold, I think. So the second category is a focus on youth now, we heard a little of this from Marcel Brands, but let's talk about this a little bit. Why is this important? Because this isn't just Academy to me, too. This is also why you would buy a younger player that's maybe not quite in their prime yet rather than a ready-made player. And we've talked about this a lot. It's just too expensive to do. But, but maybe, you guys, let's talk a little bit about why that is important for a club like Everton.
1: We talked about all the difficulties that we've had financially, right, for so long. And part of it is just really bad spending that you're sinking costs into players where you're never going to see any kind of return and that's been a recurring theme that's not new to anyone who's even passively watched Everton and so you really need to look for high, essentially some of it may be higher risk but you also have the potential for much higher return you're not getting maybe the ready-made article but you're getting the player who could buy for 5 million sell for 20 sell for 25 you're you're multiplying you're, you're just making profit on these players and you're setting the stage and setting the precedent that, hey, we can actually give young players a pathway in turn leads more youth talent into your club. You can start to develop a reputation. You can start to get the ball rolling and then it starts to snowball. And all of a sudden, you know, we arrive at a club that has an external facing identity that players are actually uh, it actually appeals to players and they want to come play for you.
0: They have to work together, no question. Youth and identity kind of have to mix together. Sorry to interrupt you, Alex, but go ahead.
2: No, no, you're good. And, and you know, when we're talking about a five-year plan, a strategic plan, um, and, and, you know, we'll, we'll kind of touch on that more later on in the segment, but really, if you're talking about youth players, and as with any skill set, younger players are more permeable, you are able to fill the gaps, let's say, <laughs> fill the gaps in your roster of your succession plan specifically with younger players, you can find a 14 year old with a certain skill set. You have the ability and the time to nurture that talent into maybe a couple different spots. Whereas, you know, you're purchasing a player on top of obviously all the business propositions that James mentioned. Um, you know, you're able to more mold them into something that you may need in a couple years. Whereas, if you're buying someone that's 25, 26, 27, there, there's no point. You don't have the time. Nor the ability to train them, in, in a lot of cases at least. You just
0: can't afford it, too. I mean, the bottom line is we're trying to chase a gap of 250 to 400 million pounds in player value, and player value is translated to performance. Well, we can't just so spend and buy that value. We have to spend $50 million and return 150, not just in sales, but in realized value of performance of these players. And that's why the youth is, investment is, you have to do it that way. So here's a quote he had, another one I really like, and it's, Young players are the foundation of any platform of any club in the league. All the strongest teams are built around players who understand the DNA and the fabric of that particular club. Identity, right? We like that. Um they understand the value of playing for New York Red Bulls or Wolverhampton Wanderers or whatever club it may be and they're clear on the identity and it means more to them. That's also really important because fans want to see the identity that you associate with on the field and if you're recruiting players that can be indoctrinated into it, they're going to feel it, breathe it, embody it even more. It's good stuff. And, and the one nice part about him is, and we're going to transition here into development. He's had a ton of experience working with you and developing young talent. So, so number three section is development. So if we look at it, you know, we talk about, he, he talks about himself being young at hard and talks about when he hired Gruber at, at uh, Red Bull, New York, it's the same type of thing, you know. But so let's look at what he did as an academy manager at Wolves. I mean, he achieved Category 1 status uh, in that academy, which I think is a big deal and takes long-term planning and, you know, a strategic attitude and idea. Um, And the fact that they were really kind of You know, his quote, so he has a resume out there on LinkedIn, which I totally recommend everyone going, checking out. It's really cool. His first line on top of this as he was academy manager was, to develop to successfully develop and manager a player development program capable of producing first-team players for Wolves. Because the bottom line is, what is the point of doing the academy in all of this? It's to either sell players so it's sustainable, but really to put players into the first team. And if you had just one academy player introduced into the first team every year, just one, and they had a lot more than that, I mean, that's worth how much? I mean, it's just unbelievable. And that's the way you can really compete. Because some of those big clubs, they can't afford the pathways or the opportunities for them. Now, they find other ways to do it. At Darby County, youngest academy manager in the country at age 32. And he was the head of youth at Preston, too. Where where if you look at what he says on the resume there, it's developed structures. Pathways. He even talks about support provisions, meaning as loan management. So let's get to development now and why development is so important because it doesn't make a lot of sense if you're going to buy youth if you don't have a very strong development program. And, and this is hard, right? I mean, this involves pathways and, and and alignment of academy through the first team. Brands talked a lot about this. I think we have a ways to go in it, though, still. Don't you guys agree?
1: Yeah, if you look at the... view maybe successes of the academy at Everton in the last five to 10 years. I mean, you can count them on one hand, right? There haven't been a ton and most really haven't lit up the first team. Some have come in and maybe got fringe minutes. Um, Some have had more of an impact, but then been sold. You need to have pathways for these guys. And even if you're buying these players like a dominant Calvert-Lewin, who really hadn't broken into the senior team, you're not necessarily taking him from like a 12 year old into the first team, but you're taking him from, on the fringe of not really getting minutes even for, for Sheffield United to starting for Everton week in, week out. So you need to have a system in place that supports these players, that allows them to continuously improve. And then you have to have a first team that is aligned with supporting, giving these guys minutes. And when you're in Everton's position at the moment, you know, it's win at all costs, more or less. Maybe you can't afford that, But if you have the right guys in place in the right systems, you should be able to win games while giving these guys opportunities. And I think that's like they can go hand-in-hand. Hand. They don't have to be mutually exclusive.
2: Yeah, and, I it, think the- and, it, and it builds upon it builds upon the identity that you want to build within the club, right? Because you have to develop them, but we're not just saying we need to make good players. We're saying we need to make good players to fit in our system in the first team. So, you know, it, it also builds having a strong identity helps you understand how you want to develop your players as well.
0: Absolutely. You know exactly what you want to focus on. What's important to you that's maybe not as important to other clubs helps with recruitment as well, too. You know, you can identify players different. You can find inequities in the marketplace, you know, that type of thing. And other clubs have been successful doing that. Um, uh, The idea of playing, too, he talks about the same tactics and, and being age appropriate. And let me read you a quote in here, too, which I really like when he talked about in New York. And one big impact he had in New York was... Um, lowering the average age of the playing team. I think, Alex, we looked at it right before we got on the air, right? I know you were looking. I think what he, he inherited a team, what, it was like 26 and then went from what? Um See, it went to 23
2: within a year or so.
0: Yeah, it went down to 23. They're the youngest team in the league last year. Uh, I thought that was pretty interesting because they had not traditionally been that way. But anyway, so here's the quote. It's a good one. What we did at Wolves and what we're doing in New York is building what we sometimes call golden threads throughout the entire program and support services that make sure the pathways throughout the system are very simple for talented players. That is key because if you're going to bring on young players, it's got to be easy for them. It's got to be simplistic. It's the same tactics. And they have to have opportunities. So here's this other. it, It continues on. I love this, too. We've worked on connecting the teams more, bringing the age groups down, bringing the age groups much closer together to hopefully give players the opportunity to succeed, and I think we've already seen some of that. Even in bringing the age of the USL team down, that's the rung below, we've had players get promoted and it has a list of them too. Caden Clark is a very good example of a success story of how he kind of matriculated in and how they sold him. So the Premier League has some unique challenges here because you can't the gap between Premier League 2 and the Premier League is way too big. There's got to be some other arenas for those players that need more time to develop but are wasting their time, like a Lewis Dobbin. Like, he has nothing more to prove in Premier League 2, I don't think. But is he ready to just jump in? Ellis Sims, same thing, just jump into the Premier League? Probably not. So is it a loan management program? I will say this, very interesting at the Wolves. They tried a bunch of different affiliates. I mean, now he left in 2020, but... In August of 2020, and I'm sure this is in the works, um, I think the owner's wife bought grasshoppers in Switzerland, which is totally bizarre, but you see a lot of transactions and a lot of movement in between them, and that's a step up from Premier League 2, and maybe a nice way to play, where they, they maybe play the same way, and... Either that or you got to have a robust loan management program. Now, they failed. Wolves failed under, under Thelwell's guidance in a couple of areas. Like FC Jamilia in Spain was a disaster. Uh, I mean, literally a disaster. There are articles out there. Check them out. Um, AFC Telford for a while, but I think that maybe I mean, didn't predate him. But FC DAC in Slovakia, they're contenders in that league now. They've transformed that team. That, that's, that's what I'm talking about. It would be very interesting to see... Whether Everton maybe set up some affiliate programs or maybe even buy over, well, not if they're seizing all the Russian assets, but buying (laughs) over, uh, you know, a club, or, or you've got to create some sort of consistent pathways. And while we've done some loans that have been okay in nature, some have been good, some have been bad, you lose control of these players even out on loans. So, how do you do that effectively? There is a way to do it. Buying clubs is one way, having affiliate arrangements is one way, but. This is something we still need to improve upon. Am I uh, don't you agree James?
1: Yeah, totally. Because you're you end up looking for loans for guys and they could go, you know, you think you have a good fit and you look at Anthony Gordon for example, he goes out on loan, starts to play, manager gets under pressure, he stops playing. You know, we've had this happen far too often. You need to have I think stronger relationships with these organizations in order to ensure that players are going to get the opportunities that they need. And that's where the affiliate programs have been so successful for other clubs where, you know, whether you own them outright or not, you have a a, quite a bit of influence. And so you can kind of run them how you like, and hopefully, you know, for the benefit of that club, as well as your own club identity too. I mean, you know, it's going to share that that bleeds over all these characteristics. They get the benefit of what you hope is a cohesive vision and the benefit of getting players that you need to improve. And, it all just, again, fits into a system that has processes in place that, hey, you go on loan here, you develop a little bit, you come back, maybe this you, you prove yourself, okay, you get your opportunity with the first team, whatever it may be. Um, and, and that is going to be so critical because we've loaned guys to tons of different clubs and it's impossible to really make a ton of guarantees about what these players will be able to do get in terms of minutes. And then they come back and they... Really haven't made the most of their opportunity or haven't been given the opportunity to take advantage of, and you've essentially wasted a year of their development. They're now, you know, from 17, now they're 18 or they're 20 or whatever, and, you know, it it becomes that much harder to actually get them into a position where they're ever going to play for Everton's first team.
0: And, And look, there are different types of loans there's developmental loans to advance their career, there's also loans just to get a guy showcased to sell them. I mean, really, you know, to get the most return on investment. So that doesn't necessarily need to have the right identity. They might be a player that you inherited that doesn't share the identity or didn't develop the way you want. Uh, There are lots of different reasons to have loans. But that's got to be a robust, comprehensive thing to do. Because if you can buy a player, say, from South America for cheaper, they may have to sit there for a while. They may not get their work permit or they can come over into Belgium or the Netherlands or other places. But you have to develop pathways to take advantage of buying young. You know, and that gets us to team building. Number four, strategic planning, you know, transfer, squad building, manager, even hiring. So this is kind of our last area, and it's absolutely the one that everyone kind of hitches on all the time. You always think about our transfer business was bad. Well, I don't know if it's so bad. We had some bad luck with injuries, but at least initially when Silva came in with brands, there seemed like some consistency around recruiting and somewhat of an identity. Um, But we've seen how tragic it is when you go and start switching managers and change not only identity of the playing style of the club, but the recruitment strategy. It's completely off. And even Leicester, who I don't think has necessarily been a perfect recruitment team, they've recruited in a similar strategy. And as a result, they've overachieved at times. Now, everyone has misses. You know, that's just how it works. Um, But if you have a strong identity and have an idea of kind of what you want to do and how you want to play, you know, you value those things maybe more than others. And you maybe get some guys nickels on the dime that eventually turn out to be good because you also then have a development pathway. So all this stuff works together, but, but let's talk about succession. I mean, so here's a line succession plans. him, his quote are a huge part of the job because people move on for a lot of different reasons, players, coaches, staff move on. So you're constantly identifying and trying to understand what people are doing on the marketplace and how they may best fit you. If something changes, obviously this is a lot easier to do if you have a strong identity and you have a strong developmental platform, right?
2: Yeah, of course. I mean, you know, we, we have talked about numerous times. As you said, we always hit on like the transfer um, windows and examples as to how, let's say we're, we're about to talk about it now with JPG scouting report, right? But losing Ghana, for example, do we have some, did we have someone like for like for Ghana lined up? No, we failed to get someone. And, and it's about creating that system in order to re- recruit players to be able to line up and say we have someone waiting for when ducore cannot run 15 miles every match because i'm not sure that we have that player right we talk about one specific type of player missing and everything goes to crap for us on the pitch currently that's why it's important yeah i i mean i think bamine was the replacement but 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 let's talk about that
0: for a second cuz it's right but thing- he didn't
2: work out well, so I, you had no plan
0: that's one player. Well, well, he got hurt. I mean, their plan behind it was Morgan Schneiderlin, who also didn't quite, I mean, work out. But again, Well, okay, but, but the point is, your point is right, because there should be a long list of succession planning, starting in yeah. the academy and other young players. So the, the quote at the end of this thing was my favorite one, which is really encouraging. So his comment is very simple, which is going to sound very familiar to people, which will be very amusing, I think. Here's his quote. One of the worst things that could happen from the sporting director's point of view, is if you end up in situations you don't need to, and maybe find yourself where, for example, say you might need a new backup fullback. You might already have a top fullback ready within the club pipeline, but you go out and sign someone else, and you've not only spent valuable resources, but blocked capable players' growth. So thinking about change is a vital part of the job, and in this age, every sporting director is doing that on a daily basis. I think there's also an importance here. He talks about going out into the market and evaluating. Every player has a price, too. Say if someone comes in and bowls over with a massive fee for Richarlison in the summer, one that you're like, I don't think we can turn this down. If you've planned it from a succession standpoint, if you've already identified that okay, if he leaves, we're going to have to buy someone because we don't have anyone to back him up. Or you've already decided, look, in terms of the way we want to play, Anthony Gordon, demari Gray can 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 be that. You know, no problem. We'll take in that. We'll. we'll play the game in financial fair play and we'll go fill in other gaps. But if you haven't done that strategic analysis and it's not done under a consistent playing identity, that's not going to change every year. You know, if you haven't done that, you're, you're, you're in trouble. Like you're never going to be able to respond to that. So we've had a combination of a lot of injuries, but we've also had a combination of total change in playing style. And like Rafael Benitez, the way he wanted to play was totally different the way everyone else played. Now, I thought, for example, Bameen was a good fit for that. He didn't, which is ironic considering in Russia he was playing in a two, but that's another story. Um, But, yeah, I mean, this is absolutely critical, but, I mean, this is a really
1: important quote, and I think something that it just seems – he seems like a strategic thinker. Exactly. He seems like the type of guy who could execute exactly what Everton have desperately needed. He's saying, and he has said, all the right things. Sounds a lot like, you know, a Dan Ashworth, for example. Do you think – Tony Bloom is panicking at Brighton and Hove Albion because Dan Ashworth is gone maybe a little bit, but you'd think that he has a succession plan in place for him. So it extends beyond just, you know, he talks specifically about a sporting director's point of view, but from an owner's point of view, from a chairman of the board's point of view, you know, when you, in any industry, not just football, though, of course it's an extremely unique sport. um, You always want to be prepared for change because people leave any, any area of employment you're going to have turnover you have to be prepared to mitigate that risk as best you possibly can and so it feels and he's done like, it already he's right. done it some too James I mean like exactly. he, bought, he brought in new coach Gerhard Stuber, Stuber
0: as a manager of, of, of New York Red Bull and fired Chris Armis which is ironic considering he's working for Rangnick now at Manchester United what were they calling him there's some, some they're making fun of him calling him something I can't remember what it was but, but <laughs> yeah, I love yeah, it, the so fact that terrible. they had that plan. They knew what they were going to do. He knew what he was going to do. He knew what he wanted. He knew what was going to fit the identity better. And and I think he saw Armis the way the team's played and said, eh, this doesn't quite jive. So he made the move. That's great. But he did that, which is a big change. I mean, you know, suddenly is is the sporting director actually going to be able to make a manager hires? I'm encouraged because he knows that's the right way to do it. Uh, Hopefully that will happen. So let's take a step back real quick. And just talk then. So what do we think we can expect from Kevin Thilwell? So we've heard a couple things. It sounds like he's definitely going to, I mean, he talks all the time about identity. So probably a focus on the playing identity and playing style. Yep. Check. Check. Ding. Yep. Recruitment of youth kind of based on that identity. Check. Check that, right? That's good. Um, focus on Academy Pathways. His experience in that regard is is tremendous, right? I mean, check. Big check. Big, big time to check. Work with manager and owner. So let's talk about <laughs> that because that's the big uh, curveball here. So, all right. What did he say upon his appointment? Right. First he's very pleased. Okay, great. Ambitious. <laughs> yep. Okay, right, right. I got paid, baby. Right, right. Okay. So so I'm looking forward to working with Frank, owner, board. Okay. And his last comment is my favorite. The, I mean, they all say the same thing when they get yeah, high. You know exactly. what I mean? So it's like, yeah. all right. The owner, the chairman, and the CEO, and Alex's point, no names. (laughs) (laughs) Alex's point off the air is hysterical. No names here. I I don't know who these people are, but they hired me. Uh, All presented compelling reasons for me to join this great club, and I'm really excited to have the opportunity to work with them and to move Everton forward. I cannot wait. I can't wait to get started. By the way, I mean, they had to recruit him. I mean, that, that sounds really like they presented compelling reasons for him to join. That's really interesting, right? So this is part of the strategic review. you got to believe that Tim Cahill had something to do with this, but I'm not sure Cahill was at New York when hmm. Thelwell came in, so um, maybe they know some of the same people, uh, but that's interesting. But, but, I mean, let's be honest here. The 800-pound gorilla in the room here is...
1: That sounds great, but we've heard this before a little bit, haven't we? A hundred percent. This sounds... Well, first of all, that last paragraph is – you could literally just – it's like a copy-paste from like generic director hiring statement. Except for you just insert the club name there at the end. I can't wait to get started. We didn't that have said, to, actually. He didn't call it out.
0: So like yeah, other than the club name, like the owner, chairman, CEO. Everyone right, could say right. this,
1: Just the know. hierarchy. Believe, believe in me. Um, but yeah, Ryan, you're right. And, and this feels – exactly like what Marcel Brands said when he was hired. The same kind of four core tenets. Identity. Top-down identity. Recruitment based on that identity. You want to bring the youth up through that, that system. You want to have pathways for young players to succeed. You want to have a good relationship with the manager and make sure you're all aligned with the same vision. And yet, what unfolded was Marcel Brands leaving because they had dramatically different directions about the future of the club. So what has changed about those respective visions because if Thelwell is saying the exact same things Marcel Brands was saying yet a few months ago, they were dramatically different visions. Something's got to give. So you would hope, and I personally hope that the owner has learned a valuable lesson in trusting the right people and letting people do their jobs who are far more qualified to be making footballing decisions. And that's what guarantees have been made to Thelwell in order to get him on board. Do we think I, that's what happened? Part of me thinks we just were like, hey, we'll give you, you know, X million dollars a year. Come <laughs> come, save us. And so, my like, concern.
0: Okay. So, so, all right, to be objective here, to be
1: objective. When he
0: was at Wolves, he was doing recruitment here in the Premier League. They did very well. Granted, they were, you know, it's the most expensive team probably ever to be in the championship. So, I can't give him too much credit for rolling with the championship. I mean, come on. Um, my concern is, my one concern is, is he really doing the recruitment here? I mean, he basically I mean Mendez I mean Folkson bought into Gestafood. So Mendez was literally formerly linked. Now they've had to break that link somewhat for, for legal reasons. But the point is, I look at the recruitment. So at Red Bull New New York, the first thing that stood out to me the last year, they did a lot of business with Beswick Sport. A lot like Lewis Morgan, Tom Edwards, Gutman alone. I mean that's that makes me a little nervous because I'm kind of like, well, that's working with agents. Now, every, every sporting director has to work with agents, so there's nothing wrong with that in theory. But let's talk about Wolves recruitment. So it's hard to tell how much is him and how much is Mendez, because, I mean, look at the names. Jimenez is the first one that stands out. Well, he's not Portuguese. It wouldn't have been Mendez. I think Mendez kind of did that. Uh, Donker, I don't think was. He was a Wasserman guy. Johnny Otto was not, but he's not really panned out. But you know who was Mendez? Podins. Nevis. Neto. Triore. Jota, Semedo, Trincao, Rafa Mir, by the way, who I like, uh, Doherty, Cavaliero, who they sold, Bruno Jordão, who's he liked but never really worked out, R- Rui Patricio, Matinho, these guys were all Mendez guys. Patrick Catron might not have been. He was a PNP guy. Federico Passarello? I know I mean, you guys probably don't know him, but he's kind of a big agent. He's Lukaku's agent now because he got ticked because of Mino. He's also Damari Gray's agent. Anyway, I, I think Mendes made that deal or brokered the deal with AC Milan. But but anyway, the point is, like, is this just more of the same? Is Kia going to be the instrumental guy mm-hmm. here doing all the recruitment? I, I, and, and is this an example where he's subservient to a greater force? I mean, he says so many of the right things. He does sound like Dan Ashworth in many ways, James. I think he totally got that right. I, I'm... I want to believe everything he says, right? The optimist in me says, yes, Everton's got a good guy here. I like that he's English, too. I think that's going to help broker the dialogue with the people at the club and maybe get them to start to transition and think differently, but also working directly with um, Mashiri and probably Kia, who's going to be involved to some extent. But what do you guys think? I mean, is this... I'm a little concerned still, especially coming from Wolves.
2: Yeah, I mean, look, we we will not know if he's going to be in charge of transfers fully. I think anyone that knows the situation over the last couple years um, would say that's probably not going to be the case. It is, he is probably not going to be 100% signing off on every signing that comes through the doors, at least now. I, I, I would say you can't believe it. However, that means that he needs to succeed in the part that he can control, and that is his relationship with Frank Lampard. That is, the signings that he can control – Can he work to be on the same page with Frank? Can they be a cohesive unit with the same vision that also aligns with the vision that the club wants? Because, in my opinion, that is more conducive to short-term success, in a sense.
0: You you know, i also say this. It's not like the guys they recruited, Wolves, are bad. They're actually quite good. Exactly. So so look, if you're going to pick and choose the guys from Mendez, it's not like he picked a lot of the right ones. I would argue the last year or two for Wolves... Have not been as good recruitment-wise um, as they had been, you know, and they kind of took some money out of the club a little bit. So he wasn't really part of that. So, so I guess that's one thing to say. There's nothing wrong with going through Mendez, but he kind of picked and chose the right guys, didn't he?
1: Yeah, and I think that's exactly right. Like these super agents, I think, are a necessary evil in some sense, where you're never gonna escape them. Ryan's doing the doctor evil. Signed to me.
0: Is he an evil agent?
1: They just exist. You're not gonna, you know, abolish super agents overnight. So the reality is, you have to work with them in some ways. And I think you know, you look at Marcel Brands. I think in a lot of cases, he was able to do that pretty well. You look at the Keen deal, etc., etc. It's about not being just their yes man. And I think he he does say a lot of the right things in Thelwell, and that's really encouraging but it feels a little bit like I've heard this all before. Maybe this guy is just a little bit of a politician where he knows exactly what to say. And then, you know, behind the scenes, we've got other people pulling the strings. I hope that's not the case because, you know, I think the reality that Everton are currently in speaks for itself and hopefully will be a strong indication to the owner that the process that we've tried in the past obviously has not worked. It has failed spectacularly and there needs to be a better process in place. New systems, or at least a continuation of the improvements that that, the good that Marcel Brands was able to do, despite the, I think, obvious at this point, you know, way he was hamstrung in his responsibilities. So I'm optimistic. I'm glad that we decided to go with a director of football. As you said, Ryan, if you're going to be victim to working with the Super Agents, at least get the good ones and don't let them hand you the duds. So what's interesting to me most about this is, you know, allegedly there's a strategic review going on. This is presumably sort of a result or It is. I mean, they said that. that. I, mean, I,
0: I believe, you know, Alan Meyer said that and I think some other Everton sources said that. So
1: I, I think we can assume that. So the strategic review, we spent a few months deciding that, yeah, we actually do need a director of football um, to do exactly what was patently obviously should have been able to do from the start. I mean... Hopefully there is obviously more to it than that. I'm being flippant. But uh, it's just kind of funny to me that we did this roundabout process to arrive back.
0: Look, I agree. He says a lot of positive things. I mean, whether he can work with them or not. I mean, any director of football is going to have that challenge. But I mean, he he hasn't lacked things to say in the past. Um, Why have we not heard from him yet? Can someone
1: uh, any guesses? I mean, that's isn't that weird? You talk about like the unveilings that we do for players and the interviews that typically roll out. I mean, this is this guy's kind of a big deal. He's kind of important to the club where we spent all of 45 minutes or so in the relegation zone today. Uh, We might want to be a little bit reassured that the club is in the right hands going forward.
0: Well, I want to hear from him because I have a feeling like, uh, you know, some of the journalists now are wise up to what happened in the past. and. I know Everton's a little tricky and sometimes you can't come out and be totally direct about things. But I think they're going to ask some of those questions like, hey, are you making the call in recruitment? So, you know what I mean? So, like, they asked Frank when he was at Chelsea, like, did you recruit these guys when they had that big spend in the summer? He's like, no, but I, I was okay with them, you know? And so you knew very much that structure was in place is very obvious. So, I mean, I'm talking to you, Patty and Greg. No, I mean, I, I, you know, you got to ask those questions. I mean, it's part of the story. Like, hey, are they going to meddle in it? You know, do you feel like they, they, you got assurances? Someone's going to ask that, I would think. Don't you think? I mean, I'm looking forward to that. Where is the when is that press conference? When do we get to hear from him? I don't know.
2: Yeah, it's going to be important to hear from him too. It's it'll also be interesting to see the timing of it based on our league position. Yeah, um, maybe throwing a maybe throw in a BMD update right before it, <laughs> prime the crowd. <laughs>
0: Nice. So well played, man. Good but, stuff. I, no, but I actually think that is important because no one wants to hear about pathways and five-year plans when you're in the relegation zone. So maybe we are waiting for timing, but I really do hope we learn a lesson. Now, Marcel Brands did not want to talk about any of this stuff to anyone for good reasons. I get why he didn't. Um, but I really hope that... When I think of the People's Club, I think we've lacked transparency at the top. And I think the, the Fans Forum has done some good things, as we talked about in the last program, getting fan representation on the board. That improves transparency at that level. I want more transparency within the football group to inspire confidence of in the fans. Too many people are just guessing on how this stuff works. And I think that would be important. And, and I, look, he seems comfortable speaking. He talks the right language, says a lot of the same things. I'm optimistic that this is going to happen. Certainly, it looks like someone that you can put in front of the camera.
1: Absolutely, and again, you know, he's a young guy. He fits in with our young manager. Could this be the revival of Everton? We've got a new, youthful exuberance about us. Hopefully, that extends to the uh, to the first team as well. But I do find it funny how the theme of uh, transparency kind of extends from our initial segment on the PGA well to Everton's director of football appointment. But with that, I think that's. Probably a good spot to end, unless either of you have any last thoughts. We can move into Ryan. Thumbs up, though. What, I mean, what do you
0: think? Thumbs, thumbs up. I, mean, I, yeah. I think thumbs up. What I am I
1: mean,
2: pretty optimistic about it. If I'm being honest, Alex, thumbs um, up. Optimistic? damn I'm I'm pretty optimistic to be honest. Cautiously I mean, you know, the optimistic. The question marks though. all. Well, no, I mean the question marks all lie with what the owner is going to do, right? Not necessarily. <laughs> we're just questioning. You know, a is he going to have control of transfers? That you know, that's part of the job. Not not the whole job. And we surely need a lot more than that.
1: And I think it's really reassuring. Ryan touched on it. I'll just wrap this up really quick was just the way in which he kind of rose through the ranks of doing a little bit of everything where he came from being managing an Academy to managing a youth team to again, managing an Academy to being a sporting director. So he's seen from the ground up how these things are done successfully. And hopefully he'll be able to provide feedback and really truly get involved at the very grassroots level and, you know, implement changes and not just necessarily be this overseeing from a very high level. Hopefully he can can dig in. And with that, Ryan, let's talk about Russia, not about the current state of the world and war and politics and all the horrible things going on, but specifically about Jean-Philippe Gabamin making an appearance for his lone club, CSKA Moscow.
0: We're not going to talk about Mikulenko's tweets. We can, but... No, let's not. Um, it was
1: wild. I'll just say that. He had
0: some choice words to the uh, Russian time. captain. Art's uh, Anyway, yeah, let's talk about this as I did uh, decide to watch one JP Bamin in Russia um, just to see how he did. Now, he played 89 minutes the other night against uh, Spartak Moscow, who is... It's funny, they've, so they didn't ban Russian clubs from playing in the Russian league. I think maybe some people were confused about that and saying, we got to get Bameen back. And I mean, there's only one Russian team that's really affected by being banned from Europe. And that was ironically Spartak Moscow, who they played. Um, So look, he played 89 minutes for them. They won 2-0, which is lovely for them. Uh, He played, they played in kind of a 3-4-3. He was one of the two central midfielders next to... um, uh, next to Yousif, uh Yasishi, and who's more of like an attacking player, which is kind of good because uh, he was playing a little bit more defensive-oriented. But he wasn't sitting necessarily. Uh, he was moving back and forth a little bit. Um, there were some positive guys. I mean, he, he looked comfortable on the ball very much at times. Um, some of his passing was crisp and, and showed his passing range that we saw before he came over. I loved his positioning in possession. You know, he was showing great support for people took off with the ball a couple of times, showed how big and athletic he is. He absolutely wrecked a couple guys, which I loved because we hadn't seen it all. And he used to do this at mains all the time there. There was one moment in particular where well, he laid someone out in about the 55th. And I just started laughing out loud because he just crippled someone. And then there was this moment in particular in like the 72nd where he gets the ball. Like there was kind of a loose ball and he picked it up and he went to take off. And, um, Martin's Pereira is a guy who plays for Spartak, who or plays for um, Spartak, right? Who they're playing against. People maybe don't remember, but he was with Young Boys for a little bit and grew up in Lyon. He's a big guy; he's like six two. Well, Bamin is trying to take off with the ball, and he's grabbing him and holding his shoulder. I mean, he literally tucked his shoulder in and just absolutely gave him a get off me. Just, I mean, laid him out like literally. <laughs> And he went down and pretended like he was dead. They called nothing. It was awesome. He just put his shoulder down. It was just like, get off me. Boom. Just lays him out and takes off. I was like, hey, where's that been? I mean, could have said, (laughs) if he did that to anyone, would have literally given him a standing ovation. Um, So there were some negatives, though. He wasn't perfect. Um, He lost the ball a couple times in traffic. And and I think a lot of that was he wasn't checking his shoulder. His awareness wasn't as maybe good as I was hoping. Uh, I don't think his full awareness is there, but. I mean, don't you, you, it's kind of stuff you expect when you haven't played for two years. Don't you agree? I mean, that's like if you had to pick and choose the things like a couple of his passes didn't have the perfect weight. Many did, though. I mean, really, most of them did. His positioning and defense was a little questionable. That's the only thing that really I saw that, like, they left a little bit of a gap in time, James. So I'm like, the gap. Um, the gap. Yeah, he got caught out a bit a couple times. But again, he's not playing in as a sitting six. So it's hard to. So some of that could be tactics. Um so what do you guys think? I mean, that's. I think for the most part that sounds encouraging. Yes, I mean that's why we sent him there, right, to play.
2: I'm encouraged that he got minutes. Seriously, that's it. I'm encouraged that he played 89 minutes. It was it was a it was a good win for them, um, and hopefully we can get some sort of something from him in the future if he can't make it at Everton, which seems less and less likely.
1: Yeah, I mean, I find it interesting that we talked about um, you know the types of loans. Like, is this is this really a loan to get him back on his feet, or is this a loan to recoup as much value as we possibly can? I think that's an open question. And really, it could be either, right? We may they not change. know. It
0: could depend on his performance. They change. I mean, I was literally having this conversation with uh, Premier League Club uh, last week, two weeks ago. We were talking about it. He's like, sometimes we send a player out on loan, and we think it's a return on investment type thing. And they grow. And, right. and we see signs that say, wow, we can bring him back in, actually. I, I think he might work. And uh, th- that could be... So who knows? Um, but Alex, you're right. Your point is the right. He's getting minutes. So look, in summary, he grew into the match. He, he does lack fitness. I mean, you could tell. He, and, and like fitness, like playing at, at speed. Um, later, you saw him kind of get his head up a little bit more. And, and he had one tackle at the end, which, which is... I distinctly remember him doing this because I wrote it up in like a mini scouting report when I was writing articles for Toffee Analysis, where he almost lets a player almost go by him. But he has length, and he can kind of step in front of him. And I kind of hate the technique, but you need to do it sometimes. And he just sticks his leg out and puts his body in front. The dude just kind of goes flying, you know, and he just wins because he's so powerful. I was like, that's – I started to see some of the player that I saw. Um, Only really the defensive positioning concerns me, like I said. Um, But I saw a lot of the player I remember, so I think that was encouraging.
1: Yeah, I hope he comes back. I I've, I want him to succeed maybe more than any player in the Everton squad, besides maybe like Tom Davies or uh, John Joe Kenny, one of the local lads, because he's just had such bad luck. And the fact that he was able to play basically a full 90, hopefully he can get through the rest of the season and just get his like composure, confidence, shake the rust off, and maybe be... As good of a player as he was when we first bought him, and if so, then he can definitely be the type of player that comes back and makes an impact for us next season. Or he gets an offer from
0: someone, and he goes in the summer, and and we recruit it and turn it around. I mean, it could be anything, but um, Alex, you're right. He's playing you know and, and clearly he's i mean looking at what they've had in the past they also often play with with three in the back or they'll play with the sitter and he'll play that position almost surely when i look at their personnel so that's also I mean
1: encouraging cause that i mean look do we what do we need most a six right most definitely desperately desperately needed so we'll watch the remainder of JPG season hopefully you know no disruptions to the russian campaign and with that that's going to do it for this episode of the american toffee podcast we thank you very much for tuning in much appreciated if you would do us another massive favor if you could leave us a rating a review on your podcast platform of choice if you enjoyed the episode leave us a comment shoot us a tweet do whatever you can find all of our social media at usa toffee pod on facebook instagram twitter you can find all of those links at linktree slash usa toffee pod if you want to join our discord which you should absolutely do it's a wonderful community Filled with very intelligent, hilarious, brilliant minds. And uh, you should definitely join that by going to invite.gg ATP. Otherwise, we'll be with you following the FA Cup tie against Boram Wood on Thursday. Until then, up the toffees.